Hello, and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hey, Tamar. And Mimi Lewis joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Tamar. This month, we're talking to Rabbanit Dasi Fruchter, the leader of a new modern Orthodox shul in Philadelphia called the South Philadelphia Shtibel. And for our second topic, we're talking about Debbie Friedman, her impact on Jewish music and on us personally on the occasion of her ninth yard site. So we're very lucky for our first segment um, to be able to speak with Rabbanit Dasi Fruchter, um, who recently moved to Philadelphia, where I am, um, and opened a new show. So welcome, Dasi. Thank you so much. It's so wonderful to be on with you. Um, all right. I think Zahava has kind of done the most prep for this segment and has the most ideas about what she wants to uh, talk to you about. So I'm going to let Zahava kind of open up for us. That was a really nice way of saying Zahava's been doing some internet stalking. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but You're so welcome. I... <laughs> I actually just wanted to uh, start at the beginning, if you don't mind, at least the beginning of your rabbinic career um, with your ordination and um, and the choices that you've been making from there. Um, so, Dasi, you are a graduate of Yeshiva Maharat, which is the first American Orthodox rabbinical school um, for women, I should say, <laughs> certainly not <laughs> in total. Um, and Yeshivat Maharat, as I understand it, lets graduates choose their own um, clergy title. So some go by Rabbah, Maharat, or Rabbi. I think there's even one Darshanit. And you chose the title Rabbanit, which is kind of an ambiguous title. Um, some people would use that just to mean someone married to a rabbi or a non-ordained female scholar, and you've chosen it for a clergy title. Can you talk a little bit about that decision and why you made that choice? Sure. Um, so just taking also a step back, it's so interesting to hear the mission and vision of Yeshivat Maharat reflected in in the moment of 2020. It has not always been framed that way. Um, and just thinking about it as an institution that ordains Orthodox women as clergy, uh, it was, it still is um, not so uh, clear cut that uh, women are accepted as clergy in the Orthodox world. So it's interesting to be part of a movement that is evolving and ever evolving. And I'm so grateful um, for institutions like Maharat who allow this uh, movement to happen and also those who came before Maharat. Uh, you know, I think of like feminism as just a movement of us standing on on the shoulders of those who come before us. So it's so interesting to just watch it evolve. And I feel really moved by the way you spoke about it and just in this moment uh Four years after my own smicha, um, looking back even on the change that's happened to this moment, uh, my title was not always Rabbanit, and it used to be Maharat. Um, someone asked me to write a blog post for Lilith about the titles that we all use in 2016. I was asked to write this piece, and I said, nope, because we're still figuring it out, and that will be the piece, right? <laughs> uh, we're all still navigating what that looks like, right, to use titles of authority in a community uh, that is still navigating what 
the the female body looks like in this role. Um, it's very much in flux. And my title changed midway through my first position. I was in the middle of a really amazing job at Beth Shalom uh, congregation in Talmud Torah in Potomac, Maryland, which is a pretty large 400 family modern Orthodox shul uh, in suburban Maryland that was very new to this idea. Uh, what did it mean to have a woman in an assistant spiritual leader position? Um, and I learned that the title Rabbanit um, versus the title Maharat actually allowed me to do my job in the best way possible. Um, and what I mean by that is that it's a title that is both familiar uh, in that it's like, it means wife of rabbi in some contexts, it means female scholar in Israel and others, but regardless, it's a term that that uh, rings familiar to many. And it allowed me to operate in different spaces, right? So in some contexts, people imagined that I was married to a rabbi, which I'm not. Um, but it helped it helped folks ha like put their mind around like what the role meant. In another context, it just sounded more familiar than Maharad, and it allowed me to do my job of spiritual leader uh, more easily. So I don't know if you expected the length of that answer, <laughs> um, but this is kind of the work right now. Um, it's like a, a huge question about how we identify ourselves in the community um, is around titles. Can you say more about how, why you made the change from Maharat to Rabbani? Was, did you decide to make the change or was it decided for you by someone else? I did decide to make the change in partnership with, okay. um, with my community, particularly uh, the senior rabbi I was working with at the time. Um, it was a moment of tension in the position because of the OU decision around female clergy. And we were kind of taking a hard look um, at how to uh, reduce kind of the the um, the resistance to my position in the world um, and in in our particular community. So I, I actually found it really cool and empowering to think about how we could do that in small ways. Um, and that's that's I, I would reflect one of the most interesting things about. Um, being on the edge of creating a new position in the Orthodox world is how small decisions around language, presentation, um, like placing things in certain areas of timing, like furniture, my goodness, furniture, like how those like <laughs> tiny decisions actually can put a community in a, in a more um, comfortable place to make change. Um, so that's, uh, that's been really fascinating. I'm happy to talk more about that also in the context of creating community, um, and starting to build community, um, how those small decisions increase capacity, uh, for making other bolder decisions. For example, when I, when I walked into my first position, which was a 400 family shul, right? Um, there was nowhere for me to give a sermon from, a drasha from. Uh, like yeah. there was nowhere to speak from, right? So like all of a sudden we have a decision on our hands, right? How do we create the structure that will allow a woman to give a talk in shul that will be empowering and also help people absorb that change in a way that won't freak them out too quickly, right? So um, this is like just a small um, 
a small version of what happens all the time, I think, with this with this question, um, because women have not operated in the public sphere, really, in orthodoxy. So it's um, we, we, we built a place for me to speak from. And it was a big deal, right? Like, where is it? Uh, when do I walk towards it? Right? All of those questions. And right now, since uh, the shul that we've kind of created from scratch is in an empty space in a storefront in urban South Philly. We ask these questions all over again, not only about women um, and how women lead and how I lead, but about everybody. Like, how do we build our shuls even in like through our minor decisions? Where does this where do the seed dream go? Right. Where do they go and what message does that send and how can we make small changes to communicate big things? Right. Uh, so that's something that the first moment I walked into the show and realized I had nowhere to speak from that brought that out in me in a big way. And I find that we are addressing those questions all the time. And it's super exciting. I'm actually interested to just back up a little bit on the concept of starting this shul and starting this community. Um, so you're one of the first recipients of this startup shul fellowship um, that's supporting the launch of your new shul. I don't know if it would have happened absent the fellowship, um, but I'm, I'm a little curious to hear about how that came to be. It's a, a brand new fellowship program as well as a brand new shul. Um, and what that, what that program has meant for the beginning of the community. Definitely would not have happened without the grant. Um, so the two grantees, the first grantees of the Startup Shul Grant are Rabbi Asher Lepatton in Detroit um, and myself here in South Philly. And uh, initially when um, the founders of Startup Shul reached out to me to do this, um, I resisted because I was making change <laughs> every day um, in my position, and it was really nourishing to see the change being made in a mainstream context. Um, and I believe, and, and I want to say this actually just very clearly, I think that the Jewish organizational world sometimes sets itself up um, as innovators versus legacy institutions. Um, and we have these like two separate fields. And I'm a firm believer that we're actually all part of the same network pushing each other. Um, and we need to be collaborating as much as possible. So what I was in was in this kind of very legacy, 100-year-old shul institution. And I was seeing the change that I was making. So it was hard for me to, to leave in favor of a totally different context, which was an innovation context, a startup context. Um, those are very different challenges and, and very different nourishments. Um, so it took me a very long time to say yes, but I want to tell you about the process of saying yes, because it matters uh, that I said yes and then said, give me a year. <laughs> um, and I believe that we actually uh, originally got in touch about your podcast very early in my saying yes. Um, to this grant. And what I what I told the funders, and I'm also really privileged to work with other um, uh, donors, right? Like uh, Hillel International's uh, Rabbinic Entrepreneurship Fellowship. And I work with uh, Zeldar Stern in New York, who supports female uh, spiritual leadership in the Orthodox community, like really amazing stakeholders. And I said to everybody, I need a year. <laughs> 
I need to take my day off in my final year at Beth Shalom in Potomac and figure out how I can be smart um, in terms of building community. How can I complement and not compete? How can I learn to create something that's uh, really needed and not just uh, kind of like import a box and put it down in the middle of a city? So I spent a year, I did around 90 meetings throughout the year. And this is with my other hat that I was trained with and learned with, which is the Jewish community organizer hat. Um, I was trained with Join for Justice, um, and they have a, a really amazing clergy training program. So I used my skills in that department to kind of figure out who are these people, what makes them tick. And I narrowed down my search from five neighborhoods in Philadelphia down to three and then down to one. Um, and in March of last year, we signed a lease on a scooter shop <laughs> in South Philly. Uh, it's a storefront on a really exciting row of res uh, of uh, like commercial establishments and restaurants. It's really cool. Um, and it's in a neighborhood where there used to be over 120 shuls and in Jewish institutions. Um, th those are all within a half a mile of where the shoal is now. Um, it was kind of like rivaled the Lower East Side, South Philly. And if you take a walk down the streets, you can see like shadows of mezuzahs and old shoal buildings and in row homes that are now residential spaces or churches. Um, and it's really powerful to be in that neighborhood where all of that Jewish energy was. But I could not have decided in less time than that <laughs> um, and having fewer meetings than that. So um, that's the long answer to how it is that I said yes to this grant and ended up in this space. So they, they told you, we think Philly is the right place. And then they did not. I said that you did. OK, <laughs> um, they said they said, where do you want to go? And I said, Philly. <laughs> Got it. Um, and people always ask me what, why? Um, have you heard of New York or Washington, <laughs> D.C.? Um, I've heard they've had they've have really good federations and strong Jewish life. And I say exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, so the reason I said Philly is, first of all, I can't imagine that I would be successful um, in the Midwest or on the on the West Coast. I am like a Northeaster girl through and through. I grew up in D.C. I lived in New York for many years. And so I knew that culturally this this would be my region. But my grandmother went to college here in Philly. My parents lived here when they were first married. And more than that, I knew that it was like just an amazing, buzzing place for Jewish life. Um, and it was growing every day. Um, so I was excited about tapping into new potential. Uh, maybe it would be a little challenging because it wasn't as saturated as the other cities. But um, I was really excited to connect with those people who I knew were here and excited to build community. Got it. I'm curious about the benefits of starting something new instead of seeking a leadership role in an existing shul. So you are already in essentially an assistant rabbi role. Um, but if you were going to be the, the sole or senior clergy in a community, do you prefer the possibility of starting something new? Is the startup idea inherently attractive? Or is this, and to an extent, the fellowship program, more about the dearth of pulpit opportunities that are out there for progressive Orthodox clergy or especially women? Yeah, there's there's a couple things going on. So 
I I personally like Dasi Fruchter. I am a resistant entrepreneur myself. Um, it is not my natural inclination, though I do love to build community. I um, I actually find that I thrive really beautifully in existing places um, and helping them to grow and strengthen and adapt and be creative. Um, I created community because I had to. <laughs> And there's a couple reasons for that. And the first reason is, as you said, like there are there is no existing Orthodox shul um, that would appoint a woman in a senior position. That's just the fact right now on the ground. Um, so that's one reason. And the other reason is uh, we need to think deeply as a Jewish community about spaces uh, that are shuls and also more expansive community centers for Jewish life that are relevant for the 21st century. Um, and we need to be working on creating those cool spaces. Um, it didn't have to be me that created the space um, or was a part of this lab of experimentation, but uh, all around the country, across denominations, we are asking this question. Um, what does a shul need to be? What does it need to look like? How can we be iterative and responsive to the needs of our community? Um, and the answer to that is we got to create something a little bit nimble so we can really respond um, and, and experiment. Um, so that's the other piece of it. Yes, it's a question about female spiritual leadership in the Orthodox community. And it's a question about spiritual communities in general in the 21st century. And I actually was uh, privileged to be a part of a conference um, uh, uh, last month at the Fetzer Institute, which is an amazing foundation that deals with questions of spirituality in the United States, with members of other faiths asking this very question. Like, are spiritual innovators, like, mm -hmm. is this a field? Right. Like, do we have to, like, think strategically together now? Because the world that we're in actually might require a different kind of spiritual gathering space. And we all need to be asking that question. So that's a really uh, interesting place to be um, and an exciting place to be. So there again, like I, I would just say there's two reasons I'm here and starting this thing. One is for uh, creating more opportunities for Orthodox women to lead and creating new models around that. And then also joining this movement of like, what does it mean to uh, create a adaptive spiritual space for the 21st century? Specifically in the modern Orthodox community, I think we have a really cool challenge. I'm curious about the startup mentality. One of the things that I know about startups is that often the founders can experience a lot of burnout um, because there is so much on you to be the engine that drives everything going on. And I think that also exists for clergy because your rest, what what we might consider our rest is your busiest time. So what does it look like? Are you are you on every Shabbat? Are there times that you're away? What does your rest look like? I think clergy have uh, questions about this, regardless of whether or not they are starting up uh, communities. I find that it is particularly challenging because I, I like to think of my work in two buckets, like community and capacity, right? So on the one hand, there's the normal work of being a spiritual leader, which is 
creating connections, pastoral care, life cycles, creating programs, like the whole thing of like what it means to be a community builder. And then on the other hand, I'm holding the capacity of the organization, which means that if I don't raise the money, I don't make a salary. So uh, the fundraising, the connections to other institutions and foundations, uh, the mm-hmm. administrative work, um, the plumbing, like everything, right? So um, that's just an additional um, stressor of being a startup that I'm not sure about yet. It's been really challenging um, and very, very full-time. Like I have probably at least two and a half jobs. Um, So I wonder about that in terms of sustainability, um, both for myself and for the other spiritual leaders who are trying to do this. Um, yeah, it's a question. Um, rest for me looks really different, um, than, uh, than expected, than I, than I expected. (laughs) Um, I don't do so much of it, but one of the things that nourishes me the most is being, uh, Mm. uh, with other, uh, spiritual leaders and rabbis who are doing this. That's great. And just kind of like chilling with them. Yeah. I, I was also wanting to dig in a little bit to the business side of it because I mean, I, I'm hearing you talk a lot about, um, the spiritual component of it. And I'm interested in like, what training do you feel like you got that is, is helpful for the business side of it? If any, um, is there, and kind of like, what are you, what are you wishing that you had (laughs) maybe gotten more training in? So I, I actually did while I was doing uh, Yeshiva at Marat Smicha, I was doing my master's at NYU in nonprofit management and Jewish studies. And so I got a master's in this stuff. And people would ask me like, oh, that's not why. Why are you doing both? You know, and I, and I would be like, because I need them both. <laughs> You're going to see I'm going to need them both. Um, and it's true. I do. <laughs> But the truth of the matter is you can learn how to write a budget in grad school and it has really very little to do with doing it um, in real life. Um, So I would say more than training, um, I need support like that. That that is actually the the. the most important thing um, that I'm I'm learning is that it's less about training and more about like providing scaffolding um, for me while I'm figuring it out. So that means financial support, that means like administrative support. And I've been really lucky to work with people who are helping me figure this out, um, you know, and, and holding me up while I'm navigating all of the business side of things. You know, the shul's been described where I've seen it written up in the press as a modern Orthodox shul. But I wonder, is it a modern Orthodox shul for modern Orthodox people? Or is it a modern Orthodox shul that serves a wider array of Jewish types? I just assume that if you're bringing a certain kind of community back to a neighborhood where it hasn't been present in a while, then my expectation is that you probably have a more diverse population than you would in a more established community. Yeah, absolutely. I I would definitely say the latter. Um, Our demographics probably are half folks who would self-identify as modern Orthodox and half are people who are just coming back to Judaism for their first time in a really long time um, and trying to find like what Jewish space will be most welcoming and nurturing to that journey. Um, I think creating uh, Jewish spaces, particularly... um, my, my tools are from the modern Orthodox community, right? Like that's home for me and that's what I understand and the tools and the relationship, 
relationship to Torah and mitzvot that I have. Um, that's not the case for every startup. Like some people are reform rabbis or conservative rabbis, but um, it's interesting for some of the people that are walking in, I'm not sure there's even a preference, um, but there is, a, I, I will say there is a drive and a desire for a richness of Judaism, um, a richness of practice that um, I find really resonates with what a modern Orthodox community has to offer around ritual and life cycle. Um, and something I was actually schmoozing with one of my non-Jewish uh, clergy friends about was this trend, this seeming trend, actually, that people want to pray in languages that they don't understand. Um, and I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, she was an Episcopalian, and she was saying that, there's this like millennial surge in in their like super high church um, with all of the incense and the language that like it doesn't make any sense. But um, so I actually found that really interesting that there's this real hunger for rootedness and something ancient. There's a hunger for the mystery um, and for the ritual. And that's something that I have in my toolbox for sure, as someone who grew up um, held by halacha and mitzvot and like a hundred brachos a day, you know, <laughs> like that is something that for sure is in my makeup. Um, now, I think our the question that I now am asking always is how can we uh, create access to the mystery without simplifying it or um, watering it down, right? Um, and one of one of the questions I always have is like, okay, Hebrew is awesome. That's that's an Orthodox service, right? It's all Hebrew. How do you create access to that for someone who um, feels like they want that rootedness, but maybe don't know Hebrew? And so, of course, the answer is transliteration <laughs> or some version of it, or access to Hebrew classes or intro to Judaism classes. So, I am. Uh, really proud to say that it is an, like an Orthodox space rooted in all, everything that means, but at the same time, really committed to access for everyone that is interested in accessing that wisdom. I think also it's worth saying, and I, you know, I had this question too about how you, how you handle the Nida conversations as somebody who is not yourself married, but I have, I think I had that question because we have this strong norm that female Kala teachers are married women, but male rabbis who answer questions about this area of halacha, their marital status is totally irrelevant to that qualification somehow. Um, so that's, uh, that's a real imbalance that it's probably worth saying out loud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, so I, I would say in most Orthodox shuls, the rabbi is not or in my case, the rabbinate is not doing much of the leading, right? It's mostly lay people. And does that also mean an Orthodox service that there is somebody else who's leading at least the majority of the service, not you? Yeah, yes and yes. There's an amazing person at the Stiebel, um who's like training a cohort of, of laners now, um, which is really awesome. But there are already people um, who are there and excited. There was a hunger for this right when I walked into the community. Um, our first Friday night had 80 people. I mean, it's not like, you know, um, it's, it's some weeks are hard, right? It's a startup. So like, it's like, oh, they're one week we're 20 and one week we're 90. But also three months in, um, for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, we had around 200 um, for for the service. So um, we're it's like the, the the having the skills for the leaders is less of the issue. 
Um, and what I find is more of an issue is increasing the ability to do that just for the sake of access, right? Like, I don't want there to be three people leading just because they can. Um, but I want it to feel like anyone can open a C door and read a thing, right? So you presumably had to build up that capacity of the community or, or were there already people in the community who were down to lead a, a service for you? Well, first of all, I would not have started a shul without having worked in one. <laughs> um, for I was there for, for three years as, as a full-time employee and then one as an intern. And that was totally invaluable. I, I learned all of that from being at Minion every day. Um, and that is something that I do not take for granted. You know, my grandfather, Rabbi Alfred Fruchter and his wife, Jeanette Fruchter, he was an Orthodox rabbi at 11 different pulpits across the United States. Um, and 11, because probably, I mean, our, our guess is that it was a time of suburbanization. Um, so what was happening is these urban shuls were like closing shop and then reopening in the suburbs. And he was just kind of hopping from shul to shul. Um, and I actually have his, um, his little like rabbinic manual um, and I use it. Um, and I actually do, do not ever take it for granted that I'm holding it in my hands, right? Like, what does it mean that, like, this object, which tells me what to do at what time, was never on the women's side, ever, right? Like, um, so I don't actually ever take that for granted, like, when, when a kiddish cup is on the women's side, or um, just the different things that are necessary for like shul life and ritual life, what does that actually mean for them to just be within reach um, for even a little girl to touch with her hands when she's walking by, right? Um, so that's been really powerful for me. Um, I am super interested in your role as a halachic advisor in NIDA and women's health. And I'm, I'm interested in kind of what it looks like to do that job long distance. And I'm also interested in what it feels like to do that job as a unmarried person um and like how do you approach that um uh when you're in a room with someone and how has it changed to do it sometimes when you're not present with the person physically yeah uh my relationship to this has shifted over the years i've been teaching brides and grooms for a, a long time now and I, I got into it pretty early on and i wasn't sure exactly what drew me to it and now i'm like Actually, just before we we started this recording, I just got off a, a Skype session with a bride and groom, um, and what I really love about it is that at the end of the day, it's about a couple's relationship to Jewish law, um, and on the canvas of a woman's body, right, and sexuality, which is like kind of insane, right? Right, like just thinking about like how we create conversations for couples to explore uh, their relationship to, to halacha through this lens of intimacy and sexuality. And that I'm talking right now about teaching brides and grooms, and that's, that's an enormous part of that job, um, is spending time teaching the laws from the very beginning. Uh, the other part of the job, of course, is answering questions by text or by phone. Um, and that is really... Um, based on my relationship with each person who asks me the questions, um, I've learned that the 
question askers are often people who I already have a relationship with. I've very rarely gotten questions from people I do not have a relationship with. Um, So it really begins at the moment that I'm teaching um, and then it evolves into their married life and then life with children um, and all of that. Um, So uh, what what I really do love about it is that um, I get to really help shepherd a couple into their conversations around Jewish law. Um, the first exercise I do with them is about, um, you know, what's your relationship to Nida and Mikvah? Like, what is what does it look like? To, like, why do you care? Um, and let's actually get on this on on a on a page together about uh, maybe you care about it for this reason and you care about it for that reason, and let's contend with that. Um, so, for me, being married is actually not the point. Um, it would be the point if it was a, a chat about practice without being perhaps rooted in the sources um, and maybe like advice, right? That's not the structure that I teach in. I teach in a very different context around like looking at the sources and using it as a conversation that is much larger than this particular area of halacha. Um, I will say as an aside, because I think it's important um, for Orthodox women to contend with this, we have a view in our community that Orthodox women are not complete women until they're married um, and until they've given birth. Um, I do think that's like a pretty prevalent unspoken norm um, in our community that I find I'm pushing back against a lot. I don't feel like I get those questions around, for example, like when I um, when I do life cycle events around death, um, nobody uh, usually is wondering, like, how am I able to bury someone if I haven't lost a parent? Right. You know, there's like uh, that's something that comes up a lot is like, what are the things that um, only only married women can access only married Orthodox women. Right. So um, it's a question that I hold in my body just as I walk around the world. Um, but I know that in our community, there are a lot of like very fierce, wonderful Orthodox women who are also not married, but feel internally that they can't really be that way um, for very long because then they won't be done, you know? Um, So I I just wonder about that. Um, Does that resonate with you guys um, as a thing? Which part? Uh, just that that piece around the norm in the community um, around singleness and completion and all that. Yeah, we've actually done a show where we talked about uh, kind of the challenges of being uh, a single woman in the Jewish community and kind of the mm-hmm. expectations and tensions around oh. that. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's true across the Jewish community, but definitely, you know, more in the Orthodox community than anywhere else, for sure. Hmm. I think also it's cool. worth saying, um, and I, you know, I had this question too about how you how you handle the Nida conversations as somebody who is not yourself married, but. I have. I think I had that question because we have this strong norm that female kala teachers are married women, but male rabbis who answer questions about this area of halacha, their marital status is totally irrelevant to that qualification somehow. Mm. Um, mm. So that's uh, that's a real imbalance that it's probably worth saying out loud. Mm. 
That's really interesting. Yeah, it's... I, I just, like, think critically about this stuff a lot um, and have myself become more resilient around, like, uh, I don't know, like, owning that I'm a good facilitator of the conversation. Um, and I used to actually, uh, like, basically apologize when people would ask me about teaching. I would be like, well, I'm not married, but... Um, and I stopped doing that, and I realized that it really doesn't matter. Um, and if people... People know who I am and know that about me. And if they're not into it, they probably won't access my teaching. Um, but uh, that's just an interesting personal thing for me too. personal growth. It's so funny to me, like in a million, it, in the same way that I feel like I would never, I would not be comfortable seeing a male gynecologist. I would not be comfortable talking to a male rabbi about a mikvah. Like, <laughs> like, I just would not do it. And, and I, I find myself often wondering, like, I, I'm actually know that my mom, like hmm. a couple of times when she went to the mikvah, they were like, Oh, you should talk to a rabbi. And I think she was just like, I'll just wait another week. <laughs> like she was just like, I'm not doing that. Um, and yeah, yeah I, I'm curious. I, like, I think that, the, that a woman for her to talk to is not something that she had access to or knew that was available when, if it was available. Um, but I'm curious if that would have like made a big difference to her. Yeah. I, I actually like realized that in my, in my previous position, um, you know, my senior rabbi who is male did not receive really any questions in a while. And I, I got a, like a lot right when I started coming. Um, it's just what you were saying. And this is an age in which women have entered into the halachic conversation in unprecedented ways. And I'm really interested to see how that shifts or changes the way Nida is even practiced um, in, in tandem, by the way, with the fact that many women choose not to get their periods very regularly. Um, so like there's right. like a couple different things going on. I do have a question. Um, I feel like we're probably running low on time. So I don't know if I'm hogging the last one or if somebody wants to think of think of a question to follow up with this. But this is a bit personal, um, both a personal question to you, I guess, and personal to me, which is I'm interested in the dynamic of being often on the right wing end of a progressive movement. So mm. as a modern Orthodox woman myself, when I'm an Orthodox feminist setting, I often feel like I'm, for lack of any better way to say this, among the frumest people in the room. Um, so acknowledging mm. that the way people dress is a flawed indicator, but for simplicity's sake, if you look at the Yeshivat Maharat website, there is a picture on its homepage of a graduate who's wearing a top with a lower neckline and shorter shearer sleeves than I would personally feel comfortable wearing. <laughs> and married women with very, very minimal hair coverings, significantly less than the hair coverings that I wear. Um, and then a lot of the graduates' bios on the Maharat website list leadership roles in partnership minyanim which even many modern Orthodox people would not accept as legitimate prayer structures. Um, and even uh, involvement with um, Yeshivat Hadar, which is explicitly egalitarian and, and not Orthodox. So 
I'm making some assumptions about you, but looking at you and having spoken to you just a little bit, I get the sense that you, like me, might be on the frummer end of your movement. Um, and the shul is billed as modern orthodox. It's certainly not billed as a partnership minion. I don't know if that's a fair assessment, but I'm wondering how you feel about occupying that space. Is that an interesting space to navigate? There's so much I want to talk to you about in that question also. I think it's such an interesting question. Um, and it also speaks to like um, a larger uh, trend around what is happening to the movements, right? Like right now, <laughs> like in, in terms of Judaism, right? Like how are each of the large movements contending with changes in the world um and are they shifting and changing who's in them and who's not and how do we like freak out and kick people out or invite people in um so that's like in a, for another podcast time um but i don't know i don't know that i perceive myself that way exactly but i guess one thing i will say is that modern orthodox community for me is home it always has been. I grew up in an NCSY house. My parents met on NCSY. They built a home that was based on those values. Um, actually, they just moved to South Philly today um, to so we can like be a, be a little shtetl building community as a family. Um, but uh, it was always my language. And so it was always my hope to stay home in my leadership. You know, some people ask me when I go speak places, they were like, why are why didn't you become a conservative rabbi? Right. You can be called rabbi. Oh, my God. That is like my least favorite question of all okay, time. Like, okay, and you know, it's the least favorite question because I'm the answer is that's not where I live. Right. Um, and it's like it's when there was a, there was a whole thing about uh, the Methodists like giving smicha their equivalent to LGBT folks and. And then other movements were like, come, we'll give you, we'll, we'll, we'll ordain you. And they're like, we don't want you. We want our home. Right. So for me, any choice that I make around my presentation or my, or like the way I use language, a lot of that m might have to do with the fact that this movement is really important to me. Right. And I want to actually have an impact in the community that I'm coming from. And that's not uh, like everyone's goal, right? So you'll find that it'll be like a range of leaders of different kinds of female spiritual leaders across uh, the, the Jewish community. Some people have very different goals and, and hopes, right? For me, like I want to go back to the shul that I grew up in and be able to speak from a pulpit, right? That's like very important to me. It's very personal to me. Um, so I would say like, some of the choices I make actually feel kind of crazy um, in that way and because they are pretty superficial. But to me, I'm almost like having an out-of-body experience, uh, having been identified um, that way, just like by you, just considering in my first year at Maharat, I was like the craziest one. <laughs> um, I, wrote, I wrote an article for Lilith called Rabbis in Red Lipstick in my first year. Um, I don't know if, if you know about that piece, but I got a lot of heat for it. Um, yeah. And that's actually like the first moment I realized that uh, even though I had all this like delicious radical Torah and my kishkas, um, in order for 
me actually to like create change in my community. I needed to package it differently. Um, and that comes with a lot of like soul searching and some of it has been hard and, and the wrong choice and other pieces of it have been like, yep, that's the right choice because I'm still doing the work. Like it allows me to do the work in a really powerful way. Um, I don't know if that made sense, but that's kind of uh, my reaction to your awesome soul probing question. That is fascinating. Thank you for uh, thank you for humoring me and opening up about that. I appreciate it. Of course. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, Stasi. Um, we have. Yeah. And good luck. Thank you. And we look forward to hearing how things go, continue to go yeah. at the Stubel. Thanks. Come visit. And thanks for bringing really important conversations to the Jewish world. Thank you. Thanks. All right, Mimi, do you want to kick things off for our second segment? Yeah. Um, so I realized thinking back to the years that we've done Talking in Shul, I've mentioned Debbie Friedman in passing a few times, but we've never really gotten to dig in to the life of this Jewish musician who I think it's fair to say shaped, changed the shape of at least Reform Judaism and arguably um, the music of other branches of Judaism as well. Um, Debbie Friedman died in 2011 uh, in January of 2011. And so this year, seeing some of the think pieces on her ninth yard site, um, I just thought it would be a good time to dive in a little bit more, as I said. So Debbie Friedman was born in the 50s in New York, but she really um, found her voice and footing in Midwest, in Wisconsin, um, in the reform movement. She was inspired a lot by folk music, Peter, Paul and Mary, Joan Baez, and we read and listened to some videos about sort of her introduction or how she got inspired um, to start writing Jewish music. Um, in particular, uh, she talks about wanting to bring the female voice into the liturgy um, and wanting to share liturgy with a reform community that in large part did not n understand or even know Hebrew. Um, so I guess I, I want to just sort of put a pin in her role in shaping liturgy, but first just talk about, were you guys familiar with the music of Debbie Friedman? What's your experience with her and her music first? I think... I had not heard of Debbie Friedman until college. And this may be the most orthodox thing about me on reflection. <laughs> um, just the fact that I was really not aware of Debbie Friedman as a person or as an influence on Jewish liturgy and people's Jewish experience um, at all. And in preparation for the segment, I went, and by the way, when I heard of Debbie Friedman in college, I'm pretty sure it was from the student head of the reform community. Um, it wasn't right. something I encountered organically in, in my religious life. And then um, going to look up videos of her music before this segment, I had heard almost none of the songs and I would say with the exception of her Havdalah, um, so her tunes for the blessings that we say at the Havdalah 
ceremony that closes Shabbat, which um, I was like, that's Debbie Friedman? I assumed that was right. like 500 <laughs> years old. But other than that, really not. Like, I think I may have heard one or two other songs once or twice um, without ever all associating them with the same person um, and just really was not familiar with her over at all. So I, I am the Debbie Friedman neophyte. Great. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, we had some Debbie Friedman tapes growing up. Um, I remember one where she's like standing in front of Shabbat candles covering her face. I don't remember which album that is, but, um, we had it. But I also know that, like, we kind of derided it. Like, it was, like, um, it was Mm -hmm. not cool. It was seen as, like, not not serious and kind of happy clappy, which is, like, in the ethos of my family, it was very much scorned. Um, And I... When... When she died, I remember reading a lot about her and just like starting to think critically about kind of like where my kind of negativity around Debbie Freeman had come from. Um, and and also just realizing that like I actually did get a lot of joy from a lot of her music. Like that I actually don't love the Havdalah tune because it feels a a little draggy to me, but I do. I think that she does joy so well. Um, and in a way that like, I think I was uncomfortable with as a kind of young person, because that wasn't the valued experience of Judaism in my world. Like I, can experience Judaism as much more kind of like intellectual, I think. But um, I don't know. I see so much more excited. I'm much more interested in, in the kind of experience of joy around Judaism now. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I feel like I have kind of shifted dramatically, whereas I was kind of like, an anti Debbie Friedman person for a while. I now, I, I would like, there's no situation I can think of where it would be like, I'm going to put on a Debbie Friedman album right now. <laughs> but there are a few of her songs that I, that are kind of like very important to my life. Um, and they are kind of unusual ones. Um, the most important one I think is, the Thanksgiving song. Are you familiar with the Thanksgiving yeah. song? Happy Thanksgiving. Hooray, <laughs> hooray, 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 hooray. Aren't you glad you're not a turkey on this Thanksgiving day? <laughs> it's oh, that's dark. so good. <laughs> it's so funny. And um, it is a huge part of my family's Thanksgiving observance every year. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I love that song of hers. She also has a song about being a latka, which is also kind of hilarious and dark at the same time mm-hmm. that I think about every time I make a latka. Um, so I, yeah, I, I have come a long way with Debbie Friedman and 
Um, and like reading about her life was also super interesting to me because of all of the kind of complex identities that she held. Yeah. Um, so I think that I agree to Mar that she does joy very well. It seems from some of the reading that we've done and then thinking back to my own experience, another thing that people really appreciate about her is the way she has talked and sung about sickness and healing. Mm -hmm. And she really brought healing into the synagogue conversation. Um, uh, One of the pieces that we read talks about and and she herself in a video that we watched talks about the healing service that she created um she essentially misha berach prayer for those who are sick had not been done in reform contexts and she went back to the text she translated it herself and she brought it into the personal sort of also spiritual healing that so many people in her friend group were looking for Um, And it's important to note that she had this neurological condition that went undiagnosed all her life. Um, Nobody could quite figure out what it was. And I think that this journey of sickness and um, not her sickness not being understood or even in some ways legitimized by the outside community really uh, played a part in her thinking about healing, which then became this whole movement within Reform Judaism and outside of Reform movements of going back to the text and to a conversation with God to think about what we need for healing. I mean, that that's huge, what, what she brought out in the community. It's interesting reading some of these. So I didn't know whether the focus on healing was because that was such a, such a disproportionate part of her legacy or whether it was because we were seeing it in remembrances after her death. So it seemed like that might have been thematically appropriate, but it sounds like from what you're saying that it really was a huge part of her legacy, regardless of the fact that she passed away young. Um, and in one or two of the pieces I saw, there was a discussion that Reform Judaism might have stopped saying it in part because there was this like scientific rationalist like are we really going to cure people by standing up and saying their names in Hebrew kind of um, moving away from that notion of how to address the problem and that she brought it back and I'm wondering whether she brought it back or she brought it in a new direction meaning those healing ceremonies do they the word that I see in what's written about them seems to be blessing rather than prayer. And I don't want to be pedantic about splitting hairs because maybe this is me way over reading that choice of words, but I'm wondering whether it has more to do with the experience of people offering the blessing to each other than about asking God to heal you in a specific way. I think that's a really important distinction. She talks about um, healing about, first of all, vulnerability with your community to say that you need healing, whatever it's for, and then courage. So th- this is all part of her Misha Berach song. Um, 
help us find the courage to make our lives a blessing. So it's it's more about the personal um, coming out as somebody who needs healing and asking God not for the healing, but for the courage to face what you need to do. Um, I don't know, Tamar, does that sound what do you think of that? Yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, I, I I had actually never heard of the healing services that she did in New York, and I was um, sad that I missed out on them. I, it doesn't sound like the kind of spiritual experience that I typically am interested in, but it did sound like something that was like incredibly moving for a lot of people and was like an important part of a lot of people's spiritual life, which is just interesting to think about that because I like I literally had not he- heard about it before um, reading some of her obituaries. Um, but it also like particularly the way you just framed it as like um, help us find the courage to make our lives a blessing. Like that does seem kind of very closely connected to um, queerness and coming out. And like something I, I just knew that she was a queer person, but like then in reading the, like, I don't know who, I don't know where I got that idea, but I just assumed that it, that was the case. And in reading, um, some of her obituaries, like it's clear that she actually never did come out and that, um, there were, a lot of people had assumptions about her identity, but it seems like they were not actually something that she ever wanted to be public about. Um, and given that like, you know, 2011 now nine years ago, but like that was very much a time when particularly in the reform community, um, I would have imagined that she would have been out. Um, and, I was just kind of like surprised that she wasn't and surprised that she seems to not have had a partner who was interested in coming forward. Like, I don't know if she just didn't have one or didn't have one who was interested in being outed as her partner. Um, But that, that was surprising to me. Um, and I do think kind of adds some nuance, particularly to the Misha Berach, which I think like if really like kind of seems like a like a particularly written towards having the courage to heal from queerness. Like there's mm-hmm. there's something um, in the lyrics that suggests that to me, which is which is complicated. Um, I, I did some more. I, I also assumed that she had come out and I did some more reading um, about, about her sexuality. In particular, there's a piece in the New York Jewish Week by Mark, by Jonathan Mark, who was a friend of hers. Um, he uses some weird language around like the radical gaze. But the piece is interesting in part because he shares um, what she herself said. So I just want to read this because I think it's really interesting. Um, What pisses me off is people, this is Debbie, pisses me off is people who say you need to come out. 
I'm thinking more than people need me to come out as a gay person, they need me to come out as a liturgist and a spiritualist. People are more uptight talking about God, more inhibited about God language and God concepts than they are about sex. So it seems like she in part wanted to um, maintain her privacy around her sexuality, but was also just so much more interested in pushing the envelope around God. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, she. Re- if you go to a reform congregation, you'll often find there are like sort of two kinds of. Um, there's a push pull in the reform community. In some congr- communities, there's like this high church, very formal people, very dressed up, a lot of production in a reform community. And then there's the other pull of the Debbie Friedman, folksy, vulnerable, talk about God and loving God um, pull. And it still is playing out in these communities and in our community. I'm actually interested. One thing that we have talked about very slightly in the past, um, in in reform, uh, worship, and celebration, especially in the youth movement context, is the notion of song leadership um, and the difference between leading prayers and being a song leader. And listening to the recordings of Debbie Friedman, it doesn't seem like she actually has a great, highly trained performer's voice. Totally agree. That she is much more of a song leader than a cantor in the traditional sense. And that is like my outsider's observation. But Mimi, I'm sort of like laying that on your lap and asking you to talk about it. Yes, totally. I mean, you hear in her voice, and I think some of the recordings from later in life, her voice is just not as strong. And she was quite sick. I mean, with a, I, I watched a video where I was like, she just looks like she's in pain right now. Yeah. Um, but I, I told you guys before, but I, my family and I, we took a road trip from Little Rock to Memphis to go see Debbie Friedman um, in concert. It was a really big deal. Temple Israel, I think it's called, in Memphis is huge. So it, re- it became like a concert venue. And the thing that, that I remember is how loud she was. And I don't think it was about the microphones. I think that she became a musician at Osrui, a camp in Wisconsin, um, that really emphasizes song leaders. And to be a song leader, you belt it out. It's all about, you know, being as loud as possible so that other people join you and can hear when you're changing the song in some way um and the what's i think that the distinction between song leader and prayer leader is almost non-existent um in that in that camp environment in the nifty youth movement environment and even in some congregations the songs are the prayers um and again that's where her identity as a liturgist is so important to understand. You have a community where there is no silent Amidah. There, 
all of the prayer happens together out loud and is usually sung or translated into English. Um, so what she was doing was was helping people pray by writing songs that they could all pray together. I think she also, I, I think that I, I see just over time, the balance of prayer as almost like a spectator sport where like you would have a chazan who was responsible for praying on behalf of the community and the community might be present while the chazan was doing their thing, but it was really the chazan's job to pray and everybody else's job to like have the chazan pray for them. And that, that, setup has changed in many communities. Like I don't think it's unique to the reform community. I think that like right. that's something that has also happened certainly in conservative and orthodox communities as well that people see it as something that they want to be more of an active participant in and I do think that Debbie Freeman was for lack of no pun intended was instrumental in bringing that um and bringing that to at least the kind of reform and conservative community. And I do think it filtered. Uh, I mean, I think like Karl Bach, for instance, was also um, a big part of that. And there, there have been other kind of similar movements in different kind of Jewish communities in different places and times. But I think that making prayer something that was personal and accessible um, and singable to people um, was just a huge shift for a lot of people. Um, uh, a friend of mine, David A.M. Walensky, who's a writer for Jay, the Jewish News in Northern California, he recently wrote a review of a documentary called A Cantor's Head, which mm. is um, about um, Jack Mendelssohn, um, who is a um, cantor, I think he's a conservative cantor. Um, and he is a very kind of like traditional old school cantor. And it's seen, I, I, I haven't seen the documentary. I just read this review of it and watched the trailer, but it seems that he has been like, his contract was not renewed at whatever synagogue he was at. And this was kind of his last um, high holiday season at this shul and he's reflecting on it. And I just like watched this and it's clear that the, the film's point of view is like, this guy is amazing. And I just watched it and was like, I connect with 0% of this. I have no appreciation for the musical ability that he brings to it. It doesn't sound good to me. And also like, it does not appeal to me to go to a service where there's like a musical virtuoso singing, performing on my behalf. Like mm -hmm. I just, that doesn't do it for me. And like, that doesn't even, to me, that's such a like weird approach to Judaism because it's not like, it feels like it's my obligation to pray and like, so like having someone do a like very intense performance of it doesn't, I don't know what that does for me. Um, and I just feel like that there are clearly still people for whom that is a very appealing thing, but I, 
also think that there's lots of people who are like part of the reason this guy's contract was not renewed was because there's just been such a shift of people who are like, I don't want that. Um, and I, I think that like something that Debbie Friedman did that was like just very smart and tactical was like, I don't think she ever framed things as like a turning away from something. She framed it. And I, I mean, I don't think this was, I, I don't necessarily think that it was intentional on her part. I think it was actually just organic to who she was, but it just felt like a kind of organic upsurging in her own self and her spirituality that she wanted to kind of like talk to God using her guitar um, and her untrained voice and that that did speak to people in a way and connected with people in a way that hadn't, they hadn't felt a connection um, with the kind of high church approach to to Judaism. Um, and uh, like that all makes sense to me. It feels, it feels obvious now, but like something that's just so interesting is just like what a countercultural thing it was when she started, like how shocking um, and not, I mean, she, she was really outside of the, uh, the like mainstream for the vast majority of her career, which is fascinating to me because she seems so mainstream to me now. Right. I think one of the things that's interesting is how she has been institutionalized now. Um, so I told you guys her, her version of Misha Berach is now the Misha Berach in the, the reform Sidor prayer book. Um, the, School of Sacred Music for the HUC, um, the Hebrew Union College is called the Debbie Friedman Institute of Sacred Music. So now she's the institution. And I think what's interesting is to see what is what is the Jewish music counterculture um, in reform spaces and conservative spaces, et cetera. The democratization element, the like giving people access to it as opposed to um, having a chazan lead on your behalf and having your job to be there to be represented. Um, for all that, I think um, orthodoxy as well as the other denominations has embraced singing in a lot of contexts. I think that democratization has happened in different ways. So in the orthodox context, it's about rising literacy, right? It's about people uh, knowing how to read the traditional sitter, knowing how to say those Hebrew words, knowing how to participate in the most traditional text. And a big part of the revolution that seems to have happened with Debbie Friedman is that she set the translation to music, the notion that the translation was also the prayer and that you could say that. And to me, okay. it seems obvious that the two reasons that Debbie Friedman has not caught on, broadly speaking, in orthodoxy are, one, it's in English, and two, right. she's a woman singing. Yeah. Um, and I feel like sometimes I mention kol isha, like the, the notion that um, men in, in certain halakhic observances do not listen to women singing at all. Um, and that sometimes I, I mention it on the podcast and I feel like the, it's like, is that really still a thing? Yes, it's really still a thing, right? Like people take this hyper seriously as a non-negotiable in large swaths of the Orthodox world. And even if you're going to take it less seriously in your personal life, the notion that you are going to openly violate what has long been considered uh, halakhic responsibility in shul, in public, is just like, 
what planet are you from? Like, I'm trying to think. But that's the thing is, like, it actually has happened. Like, the the Havdalah that you thought was 500 years old, like, some Orthodox person listened to a woman singing that and was like, I'm bringing this to my show. But never invited so, her to their shul to perform it, right? Like, it was only sure. going to migrate over via recording um, at most. And that happens to be the... In t- like something you can do entirely in Hebrew, which is true of almost none, I think, of her other compositions. The other thing, by the way, as a total aside about that Havdalah, is that in an Orthodox context, I have never heard anyone repeat the end of the bracha. So it seems like in her recordings, it's like you might say the words Borei Puri Hagafen twice, Borei Meorei Haish twice in the composition. And I've never heard that done in an Orthodox mm-hmm. setting because that is not how you say a bracha. Right. As a matter of straight up halacha, like it would have had to be clipped. And instead you say it once and then everybody goes, amen. And that's like the second part. Yeah. Because you just like the the ability to strictify it is necessary for its adaptation. Yeah. Um, but I feel like we're missing out. Like, I don't mean any of this in in like a in like a looking down my nose way. Like the fact is there is this rich, experienced thing that other people have access to that. I don't know if I'm super atypical in the Orthodox world on this particular point, but I don't think so. I feel like we're definitely missing something. Well, I think the one area that I think should be shared a little bit more is some of her kids songs. Um, Tamar, you mentioned mm-hmm. the Latka song, the Thanksgiving song. She has some really fun, funny kid stuff, which is interesting because uh, as I remember her in performances, she was kind of anti-kid. She didn't like want kids to come up and sing with her. Um, she didn't want kids singing along, but whatever. The, the kids' music is fun and, a, you know, more understandable for it to be all in English than in a liturgical setting. Um well, do you, like Mimi at home, would you guys like put on a Debbie Friedman album and listen to it like just as as music, like totally separate from the liturgical setting? Is that really common? Yeah, we would put in the cassettes in the car. That was often like Same. where I encountered Debbie. And I think that um, for my mom and my mom's generation of women... These CDs, you know, you could be or out the cassettes, you could be spread across the whole country and in a sort of anti-spiritual reform congregation. But listening to her music um, and the way that she through her music talks about spirituality was a way of of connecting to a different kind of spirituality. So for me, it was listening in the car. And I think for my mom, it was like really it was a spiritual avenue listening to her music throughout the day. Yeah. And that's not an uncommon experience for women of that age. Does it seem like there's any kind of rising um, tradition of new composition in reform or even or in conservative Judaism either? Like, I think that... Lehavdiel, not to compare these things really, but when we talked about Karlbach, one of the things that we had, we were talking about communities having trouble totally replacing the Karlbach melodies when they were trying to purge them because there there didn't seem to be lots of new compositions flooding in. Um, 
I'm obviously not saying that people are trying to displace Debbie Friedman in the same way or for anything like the same reasons, but um, does it seem like she has inspired imitators or successors in any way? So I'm not as entrenched in the reform movement any longer. I ha- So I, ha- I don't know what's going on in that space. I know a few of the names. I mean, Noam Katz is a big um, performer in the Jewish, in the reform community. Um, but I think that for me, the interesting work that's going on in Jewish composition is, is the new resurgence of Nigunim. I'm thinking about Joey Weisenberg, everything that's happening with the Rising Song Institute. Um, I, I think that we're seeing if Debbie was bringing the um, bringing translation into the um, into the synagogue. Now we're seeing a resurgence of like, let's bring back the Hebrew. Um, let's bring back this older tradition of Nigunim. Um, and I think that's where the movement is now. I'm not sure how much it's crossed over into reform communities, but I'd be curious. And it's something that I'm, I'm curious to talk to other people about. Yeah, I have the same I, I I would say the same thing. I don't I don't know if this stuff is moving into the reform movement as much, but I would suspect that it is. Um, the other thing I would say is like just the idea of being a song leader, being an instrumental again, sorry, no pun intended, part of being um, a leader in a Jewish community is feels like just an accepted part of expectations around what it means to be um a a rabbi or leader in the jewish community and certainly the reform and conservative world to the extent that like there is a big conference every year where people learn how to become i think it's called song leader boot camp and um that it's i know people who go every year like it's a big deal and i think it's an important piece of training for jewish communal leaders um and I don't think that that was something that people thought of as an important skill for Jewish leaders in kind of like the pre and Debbie Friedman days or even just like early in her career. But now it seems like a absolutely no duh thing. Like it would be really weird to have a rabbi who was not capable of doing that. In fact, I know communities where like they hired a rabbi who really didn't have a good voice and they were like, even without a good voice, you have to go to song leader boot camp. You have to learn how to do this stuff. You have to get voice training because so much of your job really does rest on being able to lead people in song and prayer. And those two things go hand in hand. Great. Thanks for letting me nerd out about Debbie Friedman. I really appreciated this opportunity. A little endorsement just to go at the end of this segment is um, one of my favorite pieces of writing about Debbie Friedman is um, called Why is Debbie Friedman's Miriam Song Such a Banger by my friend Molly Tolsky in Hey Alma. Um, And it's it's really like a a great funny piece, but also like that (laughs) song is really good. (laughs) And like I always feel kind of cheesy when I'm singing it, but like it makes you like want to get up and dance. And like, that is literally what it's about. So (laughs) way to go, Debbie Freeman. All right, Mimi, what do you have to endorse? 
Obviously, I got really excited about Debbie Friedman, did some of my um, nerding out just listening to some of her songs. Um, and I, I'll i share in the show notes some of my favorites, but I actually want to endorse a song of hers that I can't find anywhere. Um, Debbie wrote a version of Kaddish Yatom, The Mourner's Kaddish, um, for which she received a lot of backlash. People did not want that prayer put to music. Um, it's a bluesy song, um, and it's really beautiful. She did not perform it much because there was so much backlash, and therefore I can't find a recording of it except to ask my mom to like send up her old CDs. Um, but... I'll do some more looking and hopefully include it in the show notes. But if any of you know where to find Debbie Friedman's Mourner's Cottage, it's beautiful and something that I'm so grateful for, actually. Um, so that's one endorsement. Um, my second endorsement, one of the things that is for me connected to Debbie Friedman and thinking back to my youth is learning, finally learning a little bit of Hebrew and Hebrew grammar. Um, so I want to endorse a comic book um, for learning Hebrew. It's called, called Marsh Mueli. Uh, it's currently out of print, but you can still find it on Amazon, probably eBay as well. Um, it's just a really simple comic book for learning verb conjugation, which sounds so boring, but is so important. Um, and it's really fun. The drawings are simple, sweet. Um, yeah. And I bought some of the old, I, I bought some of these out of print comic books just a few years ago to have on hand for myself and my kids. Hmm. Lots of fun. I totally want to check that out. Yeah. So Hava, what do you have to endorse? So in the run-up to this podcast and, and deciding what topics to discuss, one thing we discussed was whether or not to talk about the impact of um, coronavirus quarantines on Jewish practice, and we ultimately decided not to. It seems like it's a really fast-moving situation. Um, but I did want to endorse an article that I found really interesting as I was reading um, about this. So the sort of ground zero for the outbreak in the United States has been the Seattle area. And there was an article in the Seattle Times called Streaming Shabbat Suspending Services, How Seattle Area Houses of Wardship Are Responding to the Coronavirus. And what I liked about this article actually was that it gave me a window into what elements of other traditions worship services might involve close contact with other worshipers. Um, so some of it was just a, a very large, the Muslim Association of Puget Sound canceled its fr traditional Friday prayer service for the first time ever because it usually draws about a thousand people and that's a lot of people in a particular space. There was some discussion of a reform shul um, streaming its Kabbalat Shabbat services online rather than having it in person. Um, the orthodox shul declining to suspend services. <laughs> That's an interesting little cultural note. Um, but so the um, uh, Latter-day Saints congregation I thought was interesting um, 
canceled sacrament meetings and other activities. And in place of those meetings, um, the president of the region suggested that families and members, quote, listen to church readers, leaders talks or do family history work, which I thought was a fascinating notion on what counts as worship in the Mormon tradition. Um, and then a Presbyterian church um said that its Sunday services would be different. Offering plates, friendship pads, and bulletins will not be passed around. I had to Google what friendship pads were. Apparently, in some congregations, there's a, it's kind of like a sign-in sheet, but it seems like as you pass the pad down and you sign, it's like a way of introducing yourself to other people and letting other people know who's there in fellowship with you. Um, and uh, the Grace Lutheran Church in Port Townsend um, said, we will not be offering the common cup during communion until the risk of virus passes. We will be using small glasses, which are cleaned and sanitized after each use instead. The church also suggested that they use the elbow bump rather than a handshake or hug during the passing of the peace, which is a ceremony where members of the congregation usually hug or handshake and say, peace be with you as part of like a several minutes long ceremony. And that the fact that these church services include just a specific like, see who's here with you, connect with each other separate from the worship service, A, felt totally unfamiliar to me um, <laughs> and somebody whose shul experience is very like frontal, um, like we're all here doing this frontal thing together. Um but also just really lovely. And so the fact that this article gave me a window into that was just really cool. That is cool. I read something that said that um, churches are not are um, not doing so Catholic churches are not doing the wine, but I but they are still doing the cracker. Um, and I thought that that kind of like split was also very interesting because usually they do like Mm -hmm. everybody drinks from the same cup basically. And they were like, that maybe is not a good idea. Um, (laughs) So yeah. Anyway. Is it I know there's idea? a lot of things where it's like kind of surprising <laughs> when we're still doing this at all. <laughs> um, okay, well, I am going to endorse an article called The Price of Dominionist Theology by Eve Edin- Edinger um, that's in Long Reads. Um, and it's the subtitle is After leaving fundamentalism, Eve Edinger grapples with the loaded theological heritage of evangelical personal finance teachings. Um, And in particular, what this article does is talk about how um, some of the personal finance ideas, particularly connected to Dave Ramsey, who is a famous um, kind of personal finance guru, um, um, are linked to anti-Semitism. And so that I just didn't know anything about that. And in particular, um, the shooter at Chabad in Poe seems to have been specifically, I don't know, motivated by some of these ideas around Jews and money and debt that are connected to these kind of personal finance um, gurus. And I just, I, I didn't know anything about this stuff. I know the name Dave Ramsey as like somebody who, whose ideas about personal finance um, have been important to people, some people I know, but um, I was 
really shocked by both the misogyny and the anti-Semitism that's baked into a lot of it. Um, and I think this particular analysis is really good at kind of grappling with the complexities of that and how, um, how casting debt as like a failure is something that actually tends to punish the poor, which seems like really obvious, but also, um, is not something that I had like thought about in this particular way that is linked to anti-Semitism and misogyny. So anyways, it's a really intense, complex article, but I really highly um, recommend it because it changed my thinking in a lot of ways. So again, it's called The Price of Dominionist Theology. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. You can also send us a note to tell us what you'd like us to talk about in a future episode. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page. You can search for Jewish Public Media to find us or at jpmedia.co if you you choose Talking and Chill from the list of podcasts. You can also, of course, donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, which is a great way to support our show and be sure that we can keep bringing you new episodes every month. Thank you so much, Sahava. Thank you. Thank you, Mimi. Thank you. This was fun. It was great. See you both next month.